I am in my mid-thirties, and to some definition or another have been a Christian all of my life, up until this year. I was born in the early eighties to an intelligent woman with an eye for the arts and an ear for poetry, and a man with logical intellect. Both were born and raised poor, but I was raised in a solidly middle-class home. My father grew up in a home that I believe could be described as culturally Christian, but I have been left with the impression that church was likely only attended on Easter and Christmas, if at all. My mother was raised by a woman who attended a United Methodist Church, and that woman was married to an abusive drunk who likely never stepped foot in a church. My mother introduced my father to Christianity well before I was born, and it seemed to have stuck with him. How the concept of Christianity shaped up in their minds at this time, I couldn't tell you, and I expect that I'll never know the truth of that as what it means to them now certainly can't be what it did then. Early churches I remember attending were typically Methodist. I don't think that either of my parents were particularly familiar with the teachings of John Wesley to make them brand loyal to United Methodist Church, but because my mom came up in a Methodist church and it treated her well, why rock the boat? I remember friendly dinners in the homes of people from the church. I can remember countless potlucks, or from time to time the word luck become a faux pas, as the concept of luck undermines the concept that God is all-knowing and, or, all-powerful, so we'd call them pot blessings. I remember a teenage boy who made a paper snowflake for me around Christmas that I loved so much that I asked him endlessly to make more of them for me until he began dodging me on Sundays. Church, at that point, seemed to be a bit of a clubhouse. We'd meet up with our friends, agree to be decent to everyone, and sometimes there would be food. Bible study was important. There was one church that had a program for kids called the Pioneer Club. The organization still exists and seems to be doing well. You could think of it as the Scouts of America or the Girl Scouts because you got a sash and could earn badges, except the difference is instead of learning important skills like functioning in life, you'd memorize Bible verses. For a listener who might have heard me say that the Bible has no important skills for functioning in life, I'll ask you to pause for a moment. Personally, I feel that the Bible is brimming with important lessons about life, how to conduct yourself, the moral truths. However, rote memorization of anything true and good counts for nothing. Bible memorization was the order for the day, not Bible comprehension. This is one of the greatest sins that American Protestantism inflicted upon itself. In 1517, Christianity's greatest rebel against tyranny, aside from Jesus himself, Martin Luther publicly aired his grievances with the corruption of the Catholic Church and got himself the imperial ban and set himself in 1521 to translating the New Testament into German so regular people could read it instead of having to go to the priesthood for them to explain what God wanted of them. American Christians are regularly reminded by the critics of the religion of the horrors inflicted on humanity in the name of the church, but seemingly never bothered reminding themselves of their own historical triumphs, and this is one that I count as strongly important in the church's history. You might scoff at this, since the idea of one man standing up against a parasitic church bleeding money from society with the invention of indulgences doesn't in any way compare. I wouldn't blame you for that but perhaps I'm a glasses-half-full kind of guy. The church's history is full of stories of wonderful people doing wonderful things and having revolutionary ideas. The Catholic's strange, somehow non-idolatrous practice of venerating saints is the closest that I can think of of these people being remembered. 
During my time in the Pioneer Club, I recall this was the period in which I felt the pressure of getting baptized. I'm not sure if there is a better phrasing of that, but I think that once people reach a certain age where it could be considered that they can think for themselves, for what that might be worth in such an environment, they could choose to get baptized. I use the term pressured because looking back, I don't feel that declining to being baptized was actually an option. So, yeah, maybe pressured is the right word. I do not recall to what degree the significance of baptism was explained to me. In fact, I might go so far as to say that right now I'm not clear on what the point of baptism actually is, other than a ritual that signifies to yourself and any in attendance a degree of dedication to God. The United Methodist website explains, baptism is a sacrament. In a sacrament, God uses common elements, in this case water, as means or vehicles of divine grace. Baptism is administered by the church as the body of Christ. It is the act of God through the grace of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. The idea of divine grace is also something used to make sense in a nebulous sort of way, but now is something that is murky and unclear to me. Grace might be a stand-in for salvation, but salvation is from God's wrath or maybe hell. Tying those two ends together means that God's grace is salvation from God for the sin of existing, for which God is also responsible. At the time, I do know that I had learned that Jesus, which this whole Christian thing was about, was baptized, and so should I. My parents put a heightened sense of emphasis on making sure it is something that I really wanted to do before I did it. But afterwards, in addition to feeling wet, cold, and unhappy about the chlorinated water burning my sinuses, otherwise felt no different. I had expected some sort of magic in the water, and if there was, it had not soaked into me. About this time was the beginning of a turn. As a child, I wouldn't have been able to have seen this change, let alone be able to note why it occurred. As I mentioned before, the church attendance that my family participated in felt as if it was a big club. The Trinity was something that was important, but frankly, distant. The real purpose of church membership was being members of a church. I can remember one year, Halloween approached, and us children began to get excited about getting dressed up and trick-or-treating as we had done in years past. But this year, we wouldn't be doing that. Halloween was the devil's holiday. Dressing up as ghosts or ghouls was Satan worship. And... And this is true, and I was told by my mother that devil worshippers were roaming the streets looking for blonde-haired, blue-eyed boys, such as myself, to sacrifice to the devil. Years later, I would find out that this was the season of my family's history when the satanic panic had found roots in the minds of my parents. You might have a low opinion of them for that, but I don't. They were steeped in this misinformation, and if I could blame them, it would be for not challenging their trusted channels of information, as these packs of child-sacrificing devil worshippers had no evidence for their existence. My family was just one of hundreds of thousands that was led into fear by the growing Christian media who used panic and xenophobia to sell books, magazines, and ad space on radio shows. It's a simple equation that's easy to see that caused quite a bit of damage to people, but was probably not born out of intentional malice. Human beings all have a certain degree of xenophobia born out of survival instinct. Humans want their children to be safe, and media businesses are, after all, 
profit-generating entities. A little fear of the unknown in regards to the safety of your children telephoned into an afternoon prayer show on the local Christian radio station propagates out to others who are also a little anxious about their neighbor's kid with dyed black hair and a Judas Priest t-shirt, and that person gets to talking to others just like them. I find it easy to understand how that happens without direct malice, but a Christian is tasked with emulating Christ-like behavior, which includes breaking bread with the social outcast and refusing to believe that you are without sin, permitting themselves to cast the first stone. My point is, if Christians had behaved like Christ, the satanic panic of the 1980s and 1990s would have never happened. As I mentioned before, the claims of devil worshippers sexually assaulting children and or sacrificing them in black masses was without merit or evidence. Another sin of the American Christians against itself and society at large is the dissonance between believing that the all-powerful creator of everything made you the pinnacle of creation with the capacity for such creativity and reason, but also believing that somehow you're prohibited from doing so. The Satanic Temple's Gray Faction currently is working at undoing some of the long-lasting damage caused by this intellectual sloth, specifically in regards to the idea of repressed memories. The Gray Faction's work is important, but it goes beyond the scope of what I'd like to talk about. I encourage you to familiarize yourself with their work and the damage Christians have done from jumping at shadows. Somewhere in between the ages of 8 and 10, while taking breaks from reading Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House on the Prairie books, I came across a book to read in the church's small library. It was Frank E. Peretti's This Present Darkness. It's possible you've heard of it because it was pretty big for a while, and its sequel, Piercing the Darkness. Christian fiction can leave something to be desired, but Peretti is a decent writer. These books are set against the backdrop of a New Age wave of Eastern spirituality that is sweeping God-fearing America in which these occult groups are pulling the strings of government. Meanwhile, angels and demons have sword fights over the souls of mortals who they manipulate in the perpetual war between God and the devil. One of the standard M.O.s of the New Age group was to accuse people of molesting kids or rape. I'll encourage you to remember that I read this somewhere south of the age of 10 years old. The lines between what is real and what is not can be very muddy for children. I had read all of C.S. Lewis's Narnia books and knew that no digging around in the back of a wardrobe would result in me being transported to a magical world. But Peretti's books were some of the earliest examples of, uh, that I'm aware of, urban fantasy. It is set in a very believable world, and includes elements that seem to be much closer to my own reality. The satanic panic, coupled with an uptick in the idea that demons could be literally around every corner, brought about a decade of Christianity's supernatural elements much closer to me and my family. As a side note, years later, I read Peretti's later books, Prophet, The Oath, and Monster, and recalled enjoying them quite a bit. He also had a children's series called The Cooper Kid Adventures, which, if I recall correctly, were a toned-down setting from his adult books, but the Cooper Kids were part of a family of Indiana Jones-style grave robbers. I remember one book where they explore the pit that the devil was cast down into in the book of Revelation. I don't remember if they kick off the apocalypse as a result or just have a brush with the all-powerful God's undefeatable enemy. Another Christian media personality would also arrive on the scene, which would be Bob Larson. 
Mr. Larson had a radio show that feels impossible to remember. He would have episodes where people claiming to be possessed by the devil would call in and he would cast out the demon. In fact, he would beep out the names of the demons because, as we all know, if you know the name of a demon that gives them a foothold on your soul, or he'd go to a commercial break while he wrapped up the exorcism, he'd have, quote, Satanists, unquote, on to debate them, which usually included quoting scripture to people who didn't believe it as if that'd be a valid method of debate. He also decried the evils of role-playing games, specifically Dungeons and Dragons. He'd have on people who would recount their immoral Dungeons and Dragons activities. I'm pretty sure that most of the call and guests were either actors or what we'd call trolls today. His list of things that were gateway to the occult were legion, reading the horoscope in the paper, Captain Planet, mainly because of the character Gaia, but also because this is already where human dirtbag Jerry Falwell's moral majority had begun to bleed politics into the church, but much more on that later. My Little Pony was on the list, Care Bears too, both because of magic, I guess, and heavy metal. I can't forget that. Bob Larson actually had a piece published in Rolling Stone magazine where he went on tour with the band Slayer and was disappointed that he didn't get to witness any animal sacrifices or drunken orgies while on the road with them. He also suggested that Slayer's satanic elements were a fraud put up to sell tickets. Maybe, maybe not. I couldn't tell you, but he sold a lot of books, many of which my family purchased, he and his ilk terrorized Christian families by naming anything vaguely out of line with evangelical Christian thought as being one big step towards the dark one, claiming the souls of your children. Wouldn't someone please think of the children? <laughs>